Bouncing off my window in the form of ice pellets today, and uh, might seem a little distracted just for the next few moments, guys. As I wait for my wife to get home, we had to go out and drive in this crap. Uh, we had the grandkids here, and this stuff just started. I'm keeping an eye on her with glimpses and what have you, uh, but she's almost home, so everything's looking like that'll be good. Of course, when somebody's out driving in this crap, you worry about them, but I don't think it's really sticking to the roads yet, so it doesn't matter. What are we going to talk about today? Not really the weather. Uh, though I do mention it sometimes because I consider my audience to be my friends and uh, friends talk about the weather. We're going to actually do something new today. Uh, I'm going to read some boostergrams, which we've done before, but I've kind of got a way to formalize it now. And I'm going to give you the results of last week's Twitter polls. What the hell was last week's Twitter polls? Well, I, I decided that I would start running some polls on Twitter, some on serious subjects, some just out of curiosity, some just fun. And I would just give you the results and not really big discussion about them, just kind of where the audience's mindset is. And I'll tell you how you can be part of those. And I'll, I'll pull up some boostergrams on the screen. That's people that uh, enjoyed last week's episodes and sent boostergrams in. And I got a way to do that that makes it pretty simple. And it won't take too long. So I'm going to start doing that. And if anybody out there from Fountain is listening, can you guys make this easier for me? I'd really appreciate it. Anyway, uh, next up. Uh, more proof that the elite, the banks, and the rich want high unemployment right now, really fast. Uh, I'll tell you about that when we get to it. Uh, the European Union just legalized crickets and mealworms as food ingredients. They said it's food in the article, but I'm going to tell you that I'm less concerned about you wanting to eat a grasshopper or a cricket in this case or a mealworm and buying something marketed as contains mealworms or contains crickets or here's a bunch of, uh, you know, I'm not totally opposed to the consumption of insects. Those uh, little crispy grasshoppers they eat down in Mexico actually are pretty good. I don't want to live on them, though. I'm more concerned that the way this is headed, and it's going to be the same thing in the United States, is you don't get to know what's in your food unless you read the label. And I mean the little label on the back. And, you know, these people have a tendency to create a product name like, uh, I don't know, Krismekaha, right, to mean cricket powder or something like that. Put that down there, and you have to know that's what you're – shit like that, right? Um, and I, I think this really is where uh, the whole industry is headed. They want you to eat some bugs and, and own nothing and be happy. I will not eat the bugs. I will own what I want, and I will continue to be happy. You can go, screw uh, that's how I feel in response to this. A listener reports back on the impact of my 13 stomps from a rewind series from years ago. This keeps going around. I really think I need to go back to that rewind series, extract each of those, and I'll tell you what they are if you don't know, and kind of do a modern version. Maybe a re next rewind maybe is just the stomps because this has had an impact on people in a, in a real way. Uh, somebody asked about cooking with ground venison and having it taste like, well, venison instead of just ground beef. I'll tell you why that's not really a problem and why it's also a big ass, as always. Guess what? It depends. Right? I even have a banner for it depends because it's so common around here. Um, next up, what to do about algae in an aquaponics system? Is it even a concern? Do you need to worry about it? And we're back to what? 
it depends. <laughs> but I'll, I'll tell you how this guy can handle probably most of his problem here. A doctor steps out of the system, speaks up, and admits to some limitations of his own. So I'm proud of this. I wish I would have done more with that. I don't have it in me to do this other thing. Uh, but I think this is very interesting, and that's directly in my response to an episode I did on the system wanting you sick, compliant, and dying. Um, it's been interesting that most of the doctors I've heard from in response to that uh, are quite favorable and indeed backing up what I said, though a couple are butthurt and still want me to point 100% of the blame at the patient. Not going to do it, folks. You guys are the experts. People rely on you. It's up to you to uh, to sort that out. And Hunter says, ads? Question mark. Don't know what that means, Hunter. You're going to have to explain yourself. I don't know. Uh, and last, there was a blog comment last week that I really liked about poverty consciousness and it not being directly related to not having a good income. And I hope in... I hope in all the times I've talked about poverty consciousness, I've never conveyed anything else. Poverty consciousness is a problem with thinking, not a problem with income, though it tends to limit income, and it definitely tends to limit the ability to build wealth in, in, regardless of income. And so we'll talk about that as our anchor segment today. Anyway, let's, uh, let's move forward here and remind you guys about our sponsors of the day. Sponsor of the day this week, number one, or of the day number one today, is John Bush with Live Free Academy, and he has a great seminar coming up, and it is going to be how to opt out of the CBDC control grid. You're going to hear from people like John Bush, myself, Jack Spierko, Derek Bros, James Corbett, Richard Grove, Rebecca Powers, and more. This is going to be awesome. It is a five-day series of webinars. They're absolutely free, February 6th through 10th. Uh, they start at 11 a.m. Central. I think they run until about 1. It might be that people that are VIPs or what have you get a little more access. I don't really remember from talking to John, but I will be there uh, on the 7th, I believe. I'll check to be sure on that. But all you have to do is go to this, this landing page. And there's a link in the video notes below. There'll be a link in the show notes. And just sign up for it. It's all you have to do, and you get it all for free. Next day, Paul Wheaton over at permies.com has a wonderful seminar, and it is done by a gentleman named Alan Booker, who I've heard of, but this seminar, when I watched it, was the first time I ever actually listened to Alan speak. The man is amazing. You can learn to grow your own super strains of plants, and I'm going to give away a little bit of the special sauce here. I have a write-up on this where I don't do it in text, but I'm going to do it here for you guys on the show about why... Listening to Alan changed the way that I will start seeds forever. I have never been big on making my own potting soil. I've never really felt the need to do that. Uh, I often add some some things that I was doing the right thing, but I didn't know exactly why. But even if I buy, let's say, the bulk of a potting mix off-site now, and I'm not worried about what's in it. I'm not like Paul and think there's a persistent herbicide hiding around every corner trying to wait to jump me and cut my throat. But I will always infuse with material from my site that has indigenous microorganisms in it. And I'm not talking about the Korean natural farming where you cultivate them at all. I'm just saying I will pull some soil right out of my garden. I will pull some duft out of the leaf matter around my property. I will pull some of the uh, woody pulp out of the center of some of my piles of wood chips that are like 90% broken down to compost without being composted. I will use some of my compost 
And I will put all of that along with some mineral supplementation and some uh, inoculated biochar into my soil that I start my seedlings and my peppers and tomatoes, anything I don't direct sow. And I will always do that forever and always. And I won't go into the deep explanation that Alan gives, but I'm going to explain to you why you should probably start doing the same thing. And I'll be playing with how to do this myself in, in, in better ways across time now that I know about it. But what Alan said, and I found this fascinating, if you start seeds without the microorganisms, beneficial bacteria and fungi, et cetera, that you have on your property as seedlings, and they're in your little pot for six weeks, eight weeks before they go out into the field, they will assume that they do not have these allies, and they will never form the truly the best relationships with them. And this actually has an impact on the genetics that they're able to hand down to the next seed. So I've been saving seeds on and off in different ways for over 30 years. I've never understood that. No one ever explained it that way. And, I mean, Alan has literally explained that when you, when you look at uh, the way bacteria and viruses as well in your soil interact with plants, they actually are a component to the ability of the development of the genetics to exchange information uh, at an epigenetic level and, 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 and enhance what those plants are able to actually reproduce. So you could save seed after seed after seed, but they haven't formed that full, intense biological relationship with your organisms. I probably didn't explain it perfectly. I've listened to it three times, um, but definitely you guys want to, uh, you want to check this out. The whole thing's only 10 bucks. You can learn about it in a link in the show notes today. And that has us going on to, uh, our Twitter polls, and we're not going to read that one. That's running active today. Here are some Twitter polls I ran last week. I think I ran three. One is, how confident are you that we can address the current problems in society through politics over the next 20 years based on a percent of problems solved via government and voting? The winner, by a long shot, doubtful, 0 to 15%, 88.6% of respondents said that. Some hope 15 to 40%, 10% of people said that. Optimistic, over half our problems can be solved by government and politics. 1.1% of people believe that. Very confident, over 75% of our problems can be solved by government and politics. Zero. I would say that if you are in the 98.3 percentile here, 98.9 percentile, I'm sorry, um, yeah, 98.9% of respondents are under 40%, and probably a significant number more like 15, 20% out of that. Then what you should do is you personally should spend absolutely no time on politics and government because you have all these problems you've already said you don't think they can be solved by politics and government. So you might get with actually fixing problems. That's just my opinion there. And if you believe that half or more can be, well, then maybe you should put your effort there. That's up to you. Uh, I said, what is your plan to deal with central bank digital currencies? Going to start tagging these for future reference so we can do what we're doing today. Bitcoin in the parallel economy, 69.7% of respondents. 10% said, 10.1% said, nothing, we're screwed. Uh, and 0.5, half a percent, so like two people said, what? I'm pro CBDC. My wife's home and safe, so I'm good to go now. I, there, so half a percent of people are like, I think CBDCs are great. I think they're just jacking around, honestly. Uh, but w w w WTF is a central bank digital currency, almost 20%, 197 
If you don't know what a CBDC is, you need to learn because this is going to be one of the greatest mechanisms of control ever rolled out. And it's going to be done in a very, very seductive way. The 10% of you that think there's nothing we can do, we're just screwed. Uh, generally, those people, if you bring up something like Bitcoin, they say they're going to ban it. I have an interesting question for those that that's your excuse. That's your reason that you don't want to get involved with Bitcoin. Uh, do you own a gun? And most of you, uh-huh, uh-huh. Do you believe in the Second Amendment, the rights in, you know, in, in, conferred in the Constitution, protected in the Constitution? But do you believe it's an innate human right to have a means of self-defense? And it, the Constitution or not, that it should be there. And they'll say, uh-huh, yeah. Okay, what are you going to do if they ban guns? You know, they're trying to ban guns all the time. Are you going to be like, I'm not going to buy a gun because they'll just ban them? Or are you going to do what you believe is right anyway? Uh, just a different way of looking at it. And uh, then this, I did a fun one. I was having a great, uh, great big sushi meal. I love sushi, and I don't like to do sushi with just, like, me and my wife. I like another couple or up to maybe six people. You order all kinds of things. You share it. You talk. You take your time. You're there for a couple hours. That's me. So I just thought, what does the audience out there think about sushi? Bring it on all day long. 72% of respondents. Nope. No raw fish. Yuck. 18.5%. I wish Twitter let you do more than four options because I'd like to split that between yuck, no raw fish, I've tried it, and yuck, no raw fish, I refuse to try it. That's Because that would be interesting to me how many people answer that way that I have you know, no idea. Uh, 3.8% said, you know, they eat stuff like California rolls, the cooked version, the vegetable version, whatever. And 5.6% would try it, haven't yet. If you're in the 5.6%, I encourage you, I encourage you to try sushi. And I just realized I didn't have that up on the screen for you guys, but but you heard it anyway. Uh, Next up, though, I do want to read to you guys the boostograms that came in last week. These are People that uh, boosted us on the Fountain app or from any podcasting 2.0 app. And I've got some screenshots here, and I'll read some of the boosts that came in last week, not all of them. Uh, on how F is our food system, uh, the vigorous man boosted 500 sats at excellent work, Jack. I have a place in Portugal and will incorporate these groundbreaking ideas. Uh, the user, 500 sats, thanks for another great episode, Jack. You got me all fired up about making my own biochar. I can't wait for more biochar discussion. You won't have to wait long. Michael Whitman will be on tomorrow to talk about biochar. I've started making biochar and adding to salt uh, to salt and for livestock. I'm not sure the spent that right, but that's from TW Cattle. Uh, Matt Powers explains how biology helps phosphorus availability. Really interesting video if you haven't seen it yet. And that is from Henry G. QJ, some of you guys have weird usernames. Um, how after her food system also, 20,000 sats from Kaylee PTIC. All this soil tax has me, talk has me itching for spring, more than ready for the ugly, dirty snow to get along and gone. We ain't had much ugly, dirty snow, but I got a bunch of white stuff out there today, and I'm with you, man. I really am. I'm ready for spring myself. I'm excited about this year. Last year was not a great production year for me. I didn't even try in some instances. I've got a lot of plans going on this year. More food shows from Hobbit Nuts with 5,000 sat boost. Great show, 1,000 sats from user 52 at 25. And 500 sats, excellent work from the vigorous man. Excellent work, Jack. I have a nice, oh, that's the same one we already read. This is for 
thought you guys could make this easier. What a great episode. I'll have to look for the ones where you're talking about growing Azola now uh, from Azola, a plant for food and fertility and energy. Uh, and that was from uh, Spiral Crunch. Always good info, Jack, from user 4802. 500 sats from Beard Bearded Fungi. Incredible interview, Jack. So thank you, sir. 2,023 sats from Left Seat Life. Jack, you're a jerk because of you. I tried CBDC. I tried CBD to help with anxiety, mainly from commuting in my mobile metal coffin. You had the audacity to host multiple shows on the topic, including some experts back in 2019. Not only is my emotional state under control, even though the commute is now double, but it turns out CBD even treats my asthma. Now I'm not giving money to Big Pharma every month. How dare you? Not to mention that I've been sleeping better ever since. So that's why you're a jerk, Jack. Thanks a lot, man. I love that. User 6680, rock on 500 sats. Middlemen in the loopholes from Graph, 100 sats. Thank you, sir. Uh, 500 sats. Where can I find the link to that Kenberry meat versus vegetable study? I'm not sure which that one is. That's from Smart Growth. If you want to email me on that, I'll try to get you more info. Uh, Henry uh, GQJ says, I think people, uh, once people realize mint, lemons, mango, pine trees, black pepper, etc., all contain some of the compounds found in cannabis. There are terpenes and cannabinoids like beta, some word I can't say, in the case of black pepper. The, the scary word of cannabis becomes a lot, a lot more, an awful lot more familiar, and a lot of their fear is of the unknown. I agree with that. Boost from Jim Seifert. Oh my God, Jack wants to homeschool our kids about Mary Jane and eating poor little animals and embryos. Sick. Laugh out loud. Ha ha ha. Right. Uh, we've got a couple more here. 3,000 from GD84. Eggs also have vitamin K, which helps blood coagulation. My wife nursed a cat that had eaten rat poison back to help by feeding it egg yolks, which neutralized blood thinning aspect of the poison. I don't think the amount you would get from eating eggs would be enough to make a huge difference in humans, however. I suppose if you are already susceptible to blood clots, then who knows? Maybe it's possible. I doubt it. That's from listener questions and feedback last week where I did cover uh, a study that claims that uh, a compound in eggs can make you have blood clots. Uh, there's some other things, I think, out there that might make us have blood clots that they're looking for anything to blame. Uh, last from Tansy373 Boost. I'm looking forward to the biochar information coming up. Homemade kiln-making information would be especially appreciated. More and more stuff like that will be coming. So if you would like to participate this way and send me some value on a podcasting 2.0 app, uh, fountain.fm is one of the really great apps that you can check out to do that. That took longer than I thought. I'm going to have to shorten this and maybe just do like the two top boots boost from every episode or something like that going forward. And fountain guys, you can make it easier. I'm in your beta group. Please listen to my suggestions. I am a professional when it comes to marketing and user features and you guys are missing some opportunity here. Um, and uh, we'll, 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 I will take questions, by the way. Gold Shaw Farm has uh, asked me a question. I have queued that up for the end of the show. Follow his example and put your questions in all caps. So lead main story today, um, I've been telling you that the Federal Reserve wants high unemployment. 
The corporations that all say they're going to lay people off want unemployment and the banks want unemployment and the financial elite want unemployment. And the reason they want it is they say it will help with inflation. And, and this is this is why they want it. Right. What their theory is, is if we lay people off and destroy their lives and let them suffer under the crushing debt that we've put them in and they lose their houses and they don't buy shit then inflation will cool off because we'll have less money to spend and ha 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 prices will go down and we print the money for ourselves and we'll buy all the shit when we cause a depression or at least a serious, serious recession. Well, right here, you have an example like where they say it out loud. This is in Fortune uh, magazine on Microsoft Start. Uh, layoffs are the medicine America needs to take uh, to break out of inflation's vicious cycle, says Former Walmart's U.S. CEO, unemployment must rise potentially for another two or three percentage points for there to be hope that the cycle can be broken, according to former Walmart executive, or the alternative is out of control inflation that will hurt every single American. I, I'm not going to keep reading this crap. I have it linked in the notes if you want to. Do you hear what the common theme is? Well, it's going to suck, okay? It's going to suck, and it's going to really hurt some people, but we have to do it for the greater good while they all talk about making one gajillion, kabillion, kabillion dollars, right? Like, don't you, do you see the pattern yet? Every time something bad has to happen, it's because if we don't do it, it'll be worse, even though the people that do it will bear no level of suffering under it. When they shut the whole economy down for the COVIDs, they didn't follow their own rules. They continued to fly around on private jets. They didn't wear face diapers. Many of them said that they did their duty, but they didn't do it, if you know what I mean, with the clot shot, right? They, 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 I mean, they ate expensive ice cream and told you that we were all in it together, right? Nancy Pelosi showed off like, $20 a pint ice cream in a freezer that probably probably cost about $20,000 to buy that freezer if you wanted to buy it for your house and told you that she was in it with you and staying home like the rest of us. They went out to fancy dinners uh, at the, the, what is it, the, the French Laundry, one of the most expensive and exclusive restaurants on planet Earth. Uh, the governor of California went there. They had great big parties. Uh, they put all their servants in masks. They went out wearing very expensive dresses that said eat the rich and had all the poor people serving them all masked up. And, of course, they weren't because they had to take pictures and be seen and be heard. Right. So, like, but we had to do it for the greater good and we're all in it together. That's now what you're going to hear about the recession. It's all your fault. We gave you this free money and you went out and spent it. We created a roaring economy built on fake bullshit and you participated in it. Now we have to do it or every American's really going to suffer. No, no, not every American's. I got a plan. Here's how you can fix inflation. Stop printing freaking money like it's going out of style. That's what you do. Stop spending. The government needs to stop spending it like it's going out of style. Now, you know what's not going to happen? They're not going to stop printing money like it's going out of style. They're not going to stop having the government spend money like it doesn't cost them anything to spend it because it doesn't. So no matter what they do, you're not going to rein in inflation. Not the mega trend overall. 
the, the mega trend of inflation is they've devalued the money by 99% since they created the Federal Reserve with the goal to devalue money across time. The solution to inflation is not screwing up the economy worse. It's not causing a recession. It's not forcing people who are doing jobs, right, that maybe they don't want to do, but at least they're capable of doing, and employers are willing to pay them for it, to lose jobs because you want to change a number on a report. This is like saying, you know what, everybody will get an A if we get rid of Bs, and then we automatically give everybody at least an 85 then everybody will get an A. Look, we fixed it. This is the shit that got us into this. So they shut down the whole economy, and they're like, don't worry. We'll give you stimmy checks. And they printed a bunch of money. Money isn't stuff. It's just money. So no matter how much money you print, you can't have the stuff to match the demand unless the production's there. So the plan now to fix the inflation that they caused is to kill the economy's production side. Because that's what employment is. Employment is the production of goods and services. So we'll crush the production side that didn't exist when we printed the money, and that'll fix everything. Do you do you really do you really think that's going to work? Oh, by the way, Goldshaw Farm, you're asking Tom, and Tom's telling you that the AI chatbot thing that I'll talk about at the end isn't really artificial intelligence. Yeah, Tom's right. It's not really AI. It's cool, but it's not actually AI. It's not actually intelligent. It's an illusion of intelligence. It's an illusion of communication. But we'll get to that later. But anyway, if you are not prepared for massive layoffs in a recession, then you are in denial of reality and you need to get prepared because it is coming. And it is coming soon to an economy near you. Uh, next up, I have lost my link for this, guys. So there is a story. Uh, that backs up and proves that it did happen, but you can find it for yourself quick. It is in the show notes. But the EU just legalized crickets and mealworm as food ingredients. See, this is the thing. This is being reported as the EU has legalized crickets and mealworms as food. I don't think anybody really had a hard time finding crickets and mealworms to eat if they really wanted to. Why would you legalize it as food? I mean, you can – Goldshaw Farm, we're not going to have a debate. This is not the place for it. And I'm sorry, you're wrong. The people that make it say you're wrong. But anyway, <laughs> i got to stop paying attention to chat too much. Anyway, why would they do that? Why, why, would, why would it be important to legalize something when – like, do you think anybody was running around with, like, a bag of dried crickets? And, like, the, the, the German polizei are, like – I'm gonna pull. I'm gonna pull them over and thump them with a stick, man. Because you got you got cricket dust, bro. That's illegal. No, legalizing it as food is so that all the giant brands can buy cricket ass powder meat and put it in your food as an ingredient, and then on a little label on the back, put cricket powder or cricket flour in there. Now, let me tell you what's gonna happen. They're going to come up with, like, it's a proprietary thing, right? It's a proprietary thing. And we have our own version of cricket flour. And since it's nothing but cricket flour, it's not like cricket flour and a little bit of peanuts and, like, a spray of, like, I don't know, compost tea or something. It's just, but it's the way we do it. They're going to give it a proprietary trademark name, like, 
you know, they do with drugs like Entresto. And it sounds like trust, so you trust them. So it'll be something like that. And then they'll put a thing on there. And even if you read the back of the thing, you'll have to know all the different versions thereof to know that it's crickets and mealworms or crickets or mealworms because they want to put this in the food everywhere. You will go buy, you know, sugar hose or whatever the hell it is to feed your kid. Now with more protein. And yeah, it'll be in there because of cricketalia powder or something, right? And it's exactly why they're doing it. And the plan is to do this everywhere. And let me be clear. I don't have a problem. The person who wants to eat a bug, eat a bug. I do have a problem with it being mass marketed to people as a solution to the climate crisis or whatever else to say it is. And as though it will fix things because it's better than livestock. It does nothing to fix the environment. It is actually incredibly intensive to do at a scale that will actually work as a food for humans. It takes an incredible amount of energy. It takes an incredible amount of effort. And it doesn't make any environmental, ecological, or economic sense to do it unless you force it into the system. And it will not work in a voluntary system. It will absolutely not work in a voluntary system where if you want the masses to eat it, if you put a jar of cricket meal that says with pictures of crickets on it on a shelf and a person willingly eats the crickets, you will not get broad scale mass adoption because if people wanted to eat crickets, they would have crickets that they would eat already. This is a world we live in where when somebody really wants something, then somebody provides it and they buy it. This is a market-based economy, no matter how much they try to suppress it, and every economy is, even socialist economies. Even socialist economies are market economies. Even communist economies are market economies. I don't mean the government is really doing them. I mean that people, in the end, buy what they want from people they want to buy it from. You know, remember before we had all the, the, the decriminalization, legalization, et cetera, loopholes, in the cannabis market, remember how nobody could buy cannabis? There was no can. It was illegal, so you couldn't buy it, right? Like, none of you guys that are my age back in the 80s ever blazed up doobies with your bros where you run over to some dude's house that was growing a closet. Like, remember how that never happened? Why? Because if there's a demand for a thing, the thing will be provided. You can outlaw it. You can regulate it. And the harder you outlaw it and the harder you regulate it, the more opportunity there is in the gray and black market for it, and individual entrepreneurs will come up and do it. There is no market for mealworm dust and cricket flour, but they will create one and they will use saving the planet. They will use saving the planet to try to do it. Yeah, good luck with that. I won't be eating your shit. And one of the things you can do if you're like, well, what do I do about this? Stop eating shit that comes in a box with more than four ingredients and you won't ever eat it. It'll never happen. It'll never be there in a, in a box that has only four ingredients. We'll never have cricket flour, mealworm flour, unless it literally is you want it. And they'll say, you know, made with mealworm flour. Like maybe you want to fry shit in it or something. I don't know. Um, I, but I'm I'm not doing it. And, and Giuseppe says it's actually toxic. I think that when we look at insects and we see them consumed in a mass market model, there is potential for a lot of toxicity there. Um People will tell you, well, indigenous people all over the world eat bugs. I'm going to tell you what. I don't know a lot of indigenous cultures that specifically eat mealy worms 
the type we're talking about that they want to grow. And I really don't know of anybody. I don't really know of anybody that eats crickets as an indigenous food source at any significant level. The truth is both of those are very suitable to insect farming. When I look at indigenous cultures and the insects they eat, they're generally not of those two species. There are some grubs and things like that, and there's ants and other things, but they're also generally not dietary staples. About the only exception is grasshoppers, and a grasshopper is not a cricket. And I think I have to say that I don't know how legit the claims that are going around, people talking on TikTok and Instagram and shit and short-form video, that the the insects are toxic, and it's because I don't need to know because I don't need to know something that I'm not going to eat is toxic or not because I'm not going to eat it. And I've just simply made a decision. This will not be something that's in my food or my grandchildren's food or anybody who I have any influence over is food. I'm just not going to eat it. So is it toxic? It doesn't matter because I'm not going to eat it. I don't know whether or not or I don't know how toxic. Anyway, I was going to say, I got this cool little bottle of Johnny Walker Blue that Nick Ferguson gave me. Uh, at the last workshop, and I don't know how toxic the label on this is, but since I'm not going to eat the label, I don't need to know. So much for my prop. That caused me a problem. Anyway, um, I also wanted to read this to you guys, so I just know that their plan is for It actually, like, here's why I covered this. I think there's a lot of people, when you tell them that they want you to eat some bugs, they, they think it's a joke. They don't realize the sophistication of the plan. The plan isn't to sell you on eating bugs. It's to sell government on approving bugs for you to eat. And how do you do that? How do you convince Congress to vote to approve bug juice in your food? You do what? You pay them. That's all you do, right? Like if, if, if you're not quite up to speed on that yet, that's that's what you do. You just pay them. And then then they approve whatever you want. It's that simple. It's called lobbying. So I just wanted you guys to know that. I'm trying to find this article or this uh, email right now. Um, this comes from, let's see, do we have a name? Yeah, Greg. Greg says, this will be a long message, but it's also long overdue. Three years ago this summer, you did 13 stomp series that helped change my life, not to mention that of my whole family. A bit of background, I first learned about your podcast after listening to Amy Dingman's podcast. That was at least four years ago, and I believe you had just celebrated your 2500th episode. I was hooked, and even my wife became hooked. We listened to every episode you see in short order. My wife and I were the product of a very effective compliance training, public schools and mainstream upbringing, the real problem. And I'm going to skip ahead, but he says my, my 13 stops he took very seriously and this is what he decided, because I in those 13 stops, I teach you to define what you don't want and what you do want. And that is the only way that you can clearly set goals and articulate a desire to get rid of what you don't want and, and, and to get what you do. I'm only read a few of these. I don't want to sit in an office all day. I don't want to answer to a boss. I don't want my wife to have to work. I don't want to rely on low-quality, overpriced, store-bought food. So that's a few of the things. What he does want, a close, close relationship with his kids, financial independence, to be more intentional and self-sustainable, to build a business and work alongside my family, to build community, to have an abundant life, not a busy life, 
to teach kids a different way of living, to have freedom to vacation whenever I want, to continue off the beaten path, to hear God's voice, to walk out the door of my job and never look back. Same for my wife. And uh, he has an update that I will uh, put out. I'll have to read more into that, make sure he didn't say not to put that out. But he's got a post. I'm pretty sure he's okay with it. Um, I just want to talk a little bit about the impact of that series and, and the genesis of it. So I was leaving on vacation with my wife. We were going to Florida that year, I believe. And it was going to be a long trip, 13 episodes for me not to do a new episode. For those that have been around a while, there's not a lot that go that far. And I thought to myself, I can't really leave and just leave it to rewinds with, hey, this was an episode from so-and-so, and here's a couple new ideas on it, and boom, and go into it and just totally not put out anything new. And so I sat down and said, well, it's going to be 13 because it's 13 episodes. So it wasn't like I built my whole life on these 13 things, right? So I, I just sat down and I said, 13 what? And what I realized is how many people out there had dreams and hopes and goals and ambitions to do something for themselves and their family. And a lot of it stemmed from what we talk about on the air, but it wasn't like I said, do this. So then this person wants this. And I said, do that. And then they want like, we do so much variety, but people are like, I want this thing, this thing, and this thing. And I'm like, you know, Jack, the big blessing that you have because of the success of the show is you have the life you want. You don't have everything under the sun you could conceive of as far as material things, but you live a life that's pretty envious. You get up every morning, you walk around your property, you hang out with your dogs and your birds, you get to be with your wife all the time, you get to see your grandkids every day. What are the things in your life that you did that led up to this that got you what you wanted? And I, I wrote down the 13 things that I thought had the biggest impact on me getting there. And I'm like, so what do I call them? And I'm like, you know what? I'm not going to be nice shack for these new intros. There's a lot of nice shack in the rewinds that the company. I'm like, I'm going to get in your ass, man. I'm going to. So I was like 13 kicks in the ass, you know, or something like that. And when I decided as I was getting these all ready to go, stops. The, there's so little of the kind of, and I mean this in a, in a sincere way, the harshness that is needed in our society. Men have abdicated their responsibility to be freaking men. And so most people in our country and in the Western world as a whole grow up without sufficient, strong male role models. And I'm including people that grow up with a strong male role model. A is not necessarily sufficient. And what I mean is, like, the ideal strong role model of a male in your mind is probably a dad who cares, who's caring, who's loving, but also will tell you what you need to hear when you don't want to hear it. And that will not only tell you how to act, but will demonstrate how to act. So if you have a guy that never works and tells you hard work pays off, you're like, yeah, dad, whatever. But even if you get a perfect father figure as an actual father, you're fortunate to have that. Your dad is around. He's there. The marriage lasted at least the time you were a kid. He was at your football games and shit. 
did all the right things, no matter how good a relationship a child has with his parents, every child feels at times, my dad is full of shit. My mom is full of shit. The eye rolls, all of it. And there's more of it than you will ever know as a parent. All you have to do to realize I'm telling you the truth is think back. Think back to when you were a kid and you, and now you can think back, boy, they were right. And what your attitude was. But when you look around you in society and men tend to act like men and women tend to act like women and they lead by action, word and deed. Then you start to like model your behavior on what you see around you. And when you see people do those things successfully, you do that. And as I was putting this together, it occurred to me how many times over the years that I've had people come meet me and tell me, you were one of the first strong role male models of my life. Or some people said, you're really the only, I never had one. And I'm like, well, then, then that's what this is going to be. And so Stomps is where that came from. Now, Lisa's saying 13 Skills. I remember that. 13 Skills was a project we did. Uh, it didn't completely take off, but it was developing skill sets. This is not related to that. The 13 Stomps were things like defining what you want, define what you don't want. And I really need to pull those out of those old episodes and piece them all together in one run and run that. Uh, it'd be, give me a, a day off of podcasting, I think. And I think that I, I am amazed to this day how often I get an email like this, that this had this kind of impact on people. So if you've never heard it, it will probably be coming around soon again. Uh, next up, I had a question from John in Moore Park, who I always hear from all the time. And he said, what recipe would you recommend to highlight ground venison? My local grocery store now carries ground venison. I made chili with it. But all the chili spices, there was no unique flavor from the meat. Searching online, I stumbled across this website, honestfood.net, wild game, venison recipes, burger, meatball recipes. Maybe burgers, John Moore Park. All right, so let's talk about a couple of different things here. First of all, you're looking for the venison to not taste like, well, just ground meat. You're looking for an added flavor. and enhance. You're looking for something that makes you say, well, this isn't just ground beef. This is deer. This is venison. And you're, you're consuming farmed venison. And there's nothing wrong with that. But farmed venison is probably at least somewhat grain-fed. Uh, it is not wild venison. It is the same animal, but it's not living in the wild. It's not going through the different seasons, living on different things because it has to. It's being provided for. It's being harvested uh, in the same way that, that a, a beef cow is being harvested. And the timing of the harvest is, I'm going to guarantee you, is not going to coincide with the rut when most hunting harvest happens. So there is a certain amount of pheromones kind of kicking around in the animal's, you know, body during the rut, more so with bucks. And a lot of what people call gamey, which is generally a flavor that people tend to say they don't like, is due to mishandled meat, specifically uh, buck during the rut, okay, and dealing with things like the hawk glands on the back legs. If you cut hawk glands off the back legs of a deer and you get gooey uh, pheromone gunk all over it, and then you use that knife on other parts of the deer, you are doing it wrong. So 
you're not going to have a lot of gaminess, even though I tell you all the time, gamey's not a flavor. There's no flavor that is gamey. And the reason gamey's not a flavor is, is, is twofold. One, show me where the gamey taste buds are on your tongue. Salty is a flavor. Sour is a flavor. Sweet is a flavor. We have, we have taste buds that sense these, that's a flavor. Okay? That's a flavor. If you ask 10 people what, and you put, uh, 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 if you took something that one person called gamey and fed it to 20 people, you'd have 20 different opinions about what is and what isn't game because it's not a flavor. It's a catch-all for anything that's different. But it sounds like what John's looking for is a little bit of what some people call gamey flavor. and not a, See, that's the thing. Some people say gamey in a positive way, some in a negative, et cetera. Ah, I'll leave it go because somebody's going to say, you don't know, man. You should try eating a deer that lives on Shades Brush. And I said, you should try to learn how to – how to process a deer properly and handle meat properly. But anyway, um, when you're dealing with a farmed product, you're not going to get the flavor characteristics and uniqueness of an animal that lived in the wild. And a deer that lives in a, uh, a white oak-based savanna system that gets lots of browse and graze and white oak mast is going to have a different flavor than a deer that lives in the South Texas and is living mostly on like live oak acorn that's a little bit more bitter. Like there is a terroir to an animal. So you're not going to get any of that in either direction. So farm venison alone, you're already probably not going to get much difference. It's going to taste like beef, which is what most people want. The other thing is you're probably not eating deer. You're probably eating European red stag. That is the most common farmed venison because, again, they call a thing a thing, and then they put it on the market. So nothing wrong with that, but we're already starting off from a square of you're probably not going to be like, oh, that's deer meat versus beef. It's going to be a very neutral-flavored red meat, right? That, that's, that's what it's going to be. Now, that doesn't mean you can't make it delicious. And venison shouldn't really deeply stand apart from beef to begin with, other than it's leaner. Um. If it does, you've either handled it wrong or there's something very strong that animal is consuming. You're tasting that in their body. Like, again, the sagebrush thing is not exactly uh, wrong. It's just that's not gamey. That's sage flavor, like intense sage flavor. Uh, an animal that's keyed up in the rut, which got all the testosterone and all the pheromones going, and then is mishandled on top of it, you're going to get more of that in the meat. All right. Um, my favorite thing that I've ever made with venison, though, was a white-tailed deer I shot one year. I had rhymed. I didn't plan on that. A white-tailed deer I shot one year, and the very next day I shot a pig. And I ended up when I had all my trimmings for ground where I had about 65% venison to about 35% pork. I usually go 20% pork, but that's what I had, so that's what I did. And that mix, and this is, again, it's a wild pig. Oh, this was also a boar. They were supposed to have four tape, blah, 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 blah. I mean, wild as shit, too. This was not like somebody's 4-H project that they let go. This is a wild pig on a place where they kill every pig they see as soon as they see it. Uh, and he was pretty gnarly looking, covered in mud, weighed a little over 200 pounds live weight. And I put those two things together, and they made a fantastic blend. So a pork venison blend to me for ground is the way to go. Or you want very fatty beef, like if you buy your own primals and you trim the fat off of your beef and you add about 10% of pure fat by weight to your venison, 
you're going to end up with a much more juicy product with more flavor to it because that's the other thing. Like when you buy this farm venison, they pride that they're selling to people that want lean. There's actually a lot of fat on deer. If you, you know, if you hunt deer in the right place and you don't try to remove it all, but they do. So you probably want to add some fat. Now the recipe I made with that, that my wife's not a big deer eater. Doesn't like to eat anything I kill out in the woods or whatever, but my wife killed these things every time I made them to about two pounds of a, a good venison pork mix. Add about a tablespoon, a heaping tablespoon of gochujang, which is a fermented Korean chili paste. And mix that up, just some salt and pepper to go with it. Bit of soy sauce, probably a tablespoon of soy. And then if you feel that you need any kind of a binder and you want to stay keto, you can use some pork rind, uh, ground pork rinds for this. I didn't use anything for this. Pork is a soft enough thing when you incorporate it into a meatball. You don't really need a binder or anything because if you do pure red meat, beef, uh, lamb, venison, pure red meat meatballs, what tends to happen is that it gets really dense. Even if it's not bad when you make it, if you make extras and are left over, they're kind of dense. So if you did do your venison with pure beef fat, I would probably use something like a pork rind panko or if you do bread, a breadcrumb to lighten things so they don't get as dense. Pork will prevent that from happening. That, those were the most, and I just baked them in the oven and then finished them by giving them a little bit of char so they had some char on them. Every person that ever ate those lost their mind over it, but you're only going to get so much character from farm venison. And if you're, if you want to buy farm venison, I would be much more apt to buy something that's like a steak or something uh, than a ground. A ground is going to be a very neutral, very lean. Uh, and again, it's probably European red deer. Uh, it's, it's probably not. Uh, what you think of, because I don't know that it's legal to farm whitetails at all in the United States. Uh, I don't know if they can be farmed as a meat product. And honestly, at their weight and size and upkeep requirements, they wouldn't make a lot of sense as livestock from a yield standpoint. Moving on from there, let's go on. We have lots of varied topics today. Um, I was asked what to do about algae in an aquaponic system. And I wanted to read this to you. This comes from Top Cone, uh, who's obviously in the military. And he says, and if you don't understand why I know that, then you don't know what a top is. Anyway, uh, not that kind of top, you dirty-minded people. United States Army top, you guys. Runs the company, first sergeant. Anyway, uh, I started a one-tray hydroponic system to learn how it works. Thanks a lot, you jerk. I have a 15-gallon reservoir. You recommended a pump and a one-foot by four-foot black tray with expanded clay filler. Four weeks after getting the plant started, I started to notice a lot of algae on rapid rooter plugs and clay pellets. The local hydro place told me, drain the system, scrub the room and all parts with peroxide or bleach solution. Do that to keep it from coming back. Needs to be the room clean from top to bottom, starting at the ceiling. You must scrub your ceiling to keep the algae from coming back. Okay, I don't know who these people are at your local hydro shop, but they should not talk to people. Like, they, they're just people that shouldn't talk to other people. They have no business talking to other people. They have no idea what they're talking about. First of all, if you want to use some peroxide to knock back algae in your hydroponic system, you don't need to drain the system, especially when it's not in the tank. It's on the surface. 
of your uh, hydrogen or your Lika, your clay pellets, and the, the uh, rapid rooter plugs. It won't even hurt your plants. All you need to do is mix standard strength peroxide like you buy to put in your medicine cabinet, one-to-one -one with water in a spray bottle, and where you see the surface algae, if you're really worried about that algae and want to knock it back, spray it. But there's another thing you can do that will knock it out heavily because it won't be able to survive. It's, it, you have algae on the surface because it's wet. The surface doesn't need to be wet. All you need to do is lower the high tide. If you're doing ebb and flow, lower the high point in your ebb, your, your flow cycle. And when you ebb, you know, you stay completely dry on the top. We do this in aquaponics as well. When you look at one of my ebb and flow beds, you never see algae on the top of it. And the reason you never see algae on the top of it is it's never actually wet. Because the water will come up to about two inches from the top of the pellets and go back down. And that's plenty to reach in and provide you with uh, moisture and nutrient for your plants. You can come up with an inch. Even if it gets a little bit damp, if it dries out between cycles, then you have a dry surface being hit by infrared light, right? Full spectrum lights from your, your lighting system, or if you're outside the sun's UV light, and guess what happens? Algae die. So that's the biggest thing that you need to do in a system if you have surface algae on plugs and or uh, media is lower the high tide line. If you're doing deep water culture, then when you are first getting germination done with your seeds, you, you really have to keep the water level at least touching your media, whether it is rock wool, which I don't recommend, or if it's rapid rooter plugs, which I do recommend, or anything else. You're going to have that sucker be wet. But once roots come down past the plug, the water don't need to touch plug no more. It really doesn't. The plant will take it from there. The plant's got it. Now, you want the water just below where the plugs are or barely touching it so that there is some moisture in the plug, but it's not completely soaking wet, especially at the surface. So as some water is wicking up, the top, is the, the, the lights and the evaporation are able to keep up with it so it's damp but not wet. And again, you could take a one-to-one -one, uh, peroxide mix and spray it on the surface and you won't have a problem. You can dump a cup or and the system your size, you can dump a cup of, hydro, of hydrogen peroxide in there. It won't hurt anything. You can do that in aquaponics too, by the way, to help a little bit with controlling algae. You can do it too much and you can kill fish, but people put a little bit of hydrogen peroxide in minnow buckets to help keep minnows alive. Like, I don't know who this person is that suggested you scrub your ceiling to get rid of algae. When algae can't live on your dry ass ceiling, but again, this you know who this person reminds me of. Most of us don't spend a lot of time going into um, aquaponics and hydroponics stores, and never ask a person that only does hydro about aquaponics. They'll have no idea what they're talking about. Ernie here says uh, fish love algae. Aquaponics is better. I think there's place for both, but aquaponics dedicated person, uh, hydro dedicated person should never be consulted for any advice whatsoever on aquaponics because they have no idea what you're talking about. But since we don't generally deal with somebody like this, that would tell us to scrub the ceiling of our garage with peroxide for algae in a fish tank or in a hydro tank. I'll give you his analog. 
because most of us have spent time in places where they sell guns, especially like a box store that has a gun counter, like an Academy Sports and Outdoors or something, and you're standing there looking at guns, and there's the guy next to you, right? This guy's next to you. He's talking to somebody, and he's talking out of his ass, and he says something like, well, you know, if you get a 9 millimeter, you have a little bit bigger of a kill zone. But if you step down to a 380, you got to be a little bit more precise with your shooting. He says something stupid like that. Or he says some shit about, well, you know, if you have a heavier gun, you'll have less problems with recoil, which in of itself isn't wrong. But then he says something stupid like, you know, because when you're shooting to defend yourself, you can't be worried about recoil. As though anybody who's ever shot at a living thing, like a deer or something, you don't even notice recoil when you're in that moment of actually executing. So instead of making a valid point about practicing, he says some other stupid shit. I guarantee you every person that's listening to this podcast today that's ever been inside a gun store for more than five minutes has heard this person say stupid shit to someone next to him. And you have to really bite your tongue to not say, hey, hey, don't listen to this moron. This guy doesn't know what he's, who, who are you? And why are you telling people this? I run into this all the time in nurseries, box store nurseries and stuff, you know, asking an, an employee a question about plants. And I don't ever interrupt, but I just kind of, like, if it's really bad advice, I'll hang out, wait till they leave and go, hey, come here a second. Let, let me talk to you about this. What are you trying to do? And I'll try to help somebody because I don't want them getting bad advice. But there's people, just because a person is paid twice minimum wage, to work in a retail outlet does not make them an expert about the shit that they're talking about. And it is unbelievably moronic that somebody would be told to scrub their ceiling with peroxide to prevent algae in an aquatic system. And the other thing about algae in aquatic systems, whether it's hydro, aqua, whatever, if it's not causing a problem, it's not a problem. I have algae in all my aquatic systems, all of them. When you have heavy algae on top of something like a grow plug, though, that usually is a problem because it actually inhibits the growth of the plant. So bring your level down or your plug up a little bit, hit it with a little diluted peroxide to knock it back. And if your plant growth is good, don't worry about it. And don't take advice from people like this because they don't know what they're talking about. And we need to learn to detect that we're talking to that person when we're learning about things. Another person asked me about biochar, and we do have Michael Whitman coming on, charman of the board, uh, Blue Sky Biochar tomorrow, and we can go deeper into things about feedstocks. He said, I got some uh, whiskey barrels laying around that are starting to rot. Would that be okay to make biochar out of? I saw whiskey bottles. I was going to ask about the char inside a whiskey barrel that's not biochar. You, you certainly could. Um, you know, if it's a whiskey barrel that had whiskey in it, it's long since off-gassed all the alcohol, which is going to off-gas when you burn it anyway. Uh, I wouldn't worry about any kind of chemical problems with anything like that. And it's it's a biomass, carbon-based. But if it's starting to rot, how much yield you'll get from it is, you know, variable. We're, we're back to what, guys? Again, you know, like it depends, right? It always depends. But certainly you could use those for biochar. But I doubt you're going to have enough to get a significant amount of biochar from old whiskey barrels that are falling apart. And the wood, if you had, like, some falling apart ones, there's probably some things that could be the wood that might make a higher use to like a craft or something. So uh, I don't know there. What I would say for people, the more I learn about making biochar and the way it was done historically uh, for things like Terra Preta in the Amazon region, 
is that the native cultures that did this, one thing that was unique is they just used whatever they had. And when you're in a jungle or a forest and you're taking slash and pieces of things, like you didn't fell this giant tree to make biochar. That's not what they did. If they felled a large tree, they would use it for, for wood, lumber, building material, all the stuff you couldn't use. And most of it was prunings and regrowth and woody shrubs that need to be cleared and stuff like that. So what they naturally had, what they naturally had was a diverse uh, feedstock for their biochar. Meaning, like, if you are getting sawmill stuff that's all the same tree, you don't have that diversity. And I think then certain things like exactly what temperature and exactly how you're – like, it might become more important because you don't have a natural diversity of feedstock or what was touching it, or what it grew with, or whatever. I think when you're getting a diverse array of feedstock, like I'm using all kinds of prunings off of my property to make my biochar, and I'm using uh, wood trim, wood chips, they're like big, gnarly wood chips, not the kind you buy for uh, landscaping, which makes them much easier to actually make into biochar because they don't mat together. Then I think that that stuff, there's kind of a, you know, we're back to what? It depends. There's a, there's a pretty big offset there, but basically... Unless something had a real, like, nasty chemicals on it, exposed to heavy metals or something like that, anything that is a carbon-based thing can be charred into biochar. It's just, I guess I'm saying with the wood, the barrels, you kind of have them laying around, you bust up what's left of them, you throw them into a, a batch of char, they're irrelevant to the total because they're the minority of what goes in it anyway. And most things that you might just get rid of that way instead of burning them on an open burn, but charring them into something useful would fall under that category. Um, then I got one here from a doctor. I really wanted to read this one to you guys. Um, comments from a different doctor. This is from Nick. Nick says, thanks for what you do. I was hoping to hear a bit of Spirico Domus on healthcare. I'm listening to the system wants you sick now the episode highlighted that I can do better than I'm currently for my profession. I've tried to walk the line between supporting my kids and maintaining employment and maintaining integrity to my beliefs. I apologize. This may be longer than it's ideal, but here are several thoughts. As a background for this email, I'm an emergency physician in the Midwest. One year ago, I lost my job for three months after refusing the jab and was then hired back when I held my ground. Funny that, isn't it? They scared everybody and the people that didn't do it. In high-demand areas like hospitals, they just hired him back. This is imperative. You're all fired. Three months later, okay, you can have your job back. We didn't really mean it. It's interesting. That's happening in so many places. I started a certification in functional medicine with the intent to open a standalone clinic in conjunction with my other business. I'm not really impressed with certification as a measure, but it's a condensed source of information for something I had zero medical education in. Because like you said, the education really is more training then education. Also, patients value the concept of certification. I'm trying to figure out where medicine will head in this shit show of progress so I can position myself as well as possible. I believe that as more, that as more become unemployed and lose insurance, I will be able to see them for at least some health maintenance stuff for cash. It will be cheaper than their insurance anyway. Most management and functional medicine consists of optimizing diet, stress, and sleep. I think medicine will become more decentralized as well as trust has been completely eroded. I would love to hear your thoughts about medicine and where medicine is going. Well, thanks. Thanks for doing something, Doc. 
And thanks for being honest. I really appreciate that as well. Thank you. And thanks for admitting you can't always be perfect because in the end you got to pay your bills because until people do that, we, 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 it's like you can't say anything bad about a doctor unless they're a doctor that spoke out against the jab and then they're a quack. But if you say like doctors do things that they know are wrong because they have to, well, you're, you're, you're shitting on a hero that doesn't wear a cape, right? Didn't you hear the TikTok nurses explain this to you in a dance where they use Michael Jackson's thrower to convince you that you were going to die? Don't you know that? I mean, that's the response you get. So where do I think this is going? Well, first of all, I think in the, the place that you are, Never devalue the fact that you have a license in medicine and you're worth something financially. I mean, not as a man, economically, like you have way more power than you. A lot of doctors, I'll lose my job. Go get another one. Really? Like start your own practice. I think that's a good idea. Functional medicine, maybe. I, I don't know specialties and certifications in the medical industry. I don't know. But I would tell you the doctors that I talk to, who are the happiest with their practice are either doing some form of concierge medicine or they're a direct primary physician, direct primary care physician, DPC, or both in some way. Because they completely untether themselves from the insurance industry. They have a set price as a retainer for their patients. They do everything they can for that patient. They don't refer that patient to a specialist when they don't need to, which happens all the time in conventional medicine. You have this doctor that went through all this shit to become a doctor. And he's like, I know what's wrong here, but this is how the system works. So I'll issue a referral to a specialist for this thing when I know what's wrong here. Right. An average primary care doctor can do a ton of things that you're sent to specialists for. Now the patient waits longer. They spend more money. The insurance doesn't cover it anyway. It just goes against the deductible that they never meet. It's a freaking nightmare. And so the patients I know working with direct primary cares seem very happy. And the doctors doing the work seem very happy. And none of them are like, dude, you know what? Since I started acting as a direct primary care physician and not living off the insurance industry, I can't afford to make my car payments anymore. I can't afford my membership at my golf course. They all seem to be doing okay. And I think the more people that do it and the more people that market it, the better off you're going to be. I think it's one of the biggest growth things, growth segments that will happen among physicians. Because frankly, I'm hard on doctors because they don't speak up and do the right thing enough. And because they do walk back. I'm sorry. There's plenty of doctors. They walk literally backwards into an exam room. Here's a prescription and they run off and they become jaded like every profession. Cops become jaded. Teachers become jaded. Doc, I'm not going to talk to this asshole about his diet because he ain't going to listen anyway. Here, I'm going to up your insulin. Go lose your foot. Goodbye. Even though they smile when they, they say better words than that. But that's what's I get that. But they don't want it. They're in a system that is designed. I get the bill more. If you're on more medication, I change it more often. Ken Berry explained this at length. I think we're going to go back to doctors being what doctors are supposed to be. The word doctor itself comes from the concept of a teacher. The original doctors, if we go back to the times of like, you know, like Socrates and what have you, doctors were teachers. You went to a doctor to learn how to be more healthy. 
And that was the real expertise of a doctor. It doesn't mean we can't use drugs at times or surgery at times, but we actually had a doctor and a surgeon. We still kind of have that division today. Like most doctors can do some minor surgeries and things like that, but you have people that are truly trained to be able to crack a chest open and, and fix a heart, uh, do a bypass, you know, yeah, replace a valve, like amazing things that we can do. And if you need it, then you want that guy. But a person that actually actively did something to you, they called a surgeon and the person that taught you how to be healthy, they called a doctor. And if we add the ability to use pharmaceuticals when they make sense, like if you have a bacterial infection, that, that, that typically responds well to antibiotics, guess what? Probably makes sense to use freaking antibiotic, right? Because it, it saves lives. Let's do that. But in when I've talked to DPCs, what they generally say is their job is to keep you out of the, in the emergency room. That's their first job, keep you out of the emergency room. Make sure that we deal with things before they become acute, uh, acute and so you don't end up there. They send you to the cheapest laboratory testing they can do if they don't have the ability to do the testing in their own office. You have a problem, you pick up the phone, you call them, and a lot of times it's all you need. And, you know, my wife, when she goes to a doctor off that takes her insurance, I have a thing I need to see you for. Well, I'll see you in three weeks. You have a direct primary care. You pick up the phone, you call them, and they talk to you that day. And they, they see you when they need to see you, and they don't see you when they don't need to see you. There are so, like, another one of these gimmicks is, well, you got your test results back. Let's set an appointment for you to come in and talk about them. And the test results are, this isn't perfect, this isn't great, uh, blah, 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 and goodbye. And the only reason they brought you in, instead of just giving you the test results, is why? So they could bill for the appointment. Doctors are going to have to start stepping out of that system. And doctors are stepping out of that system. And the first way you step out of that system is you get rid of, even if you'll take insurance, the need to take insurance. I have a program for you that's outside your insurance. You want to use your insurance, go use your insurance. And I'm telling you, the whole system is designed as nothing but a money machine for the elites. It really is. And it's not that some of these medications aren't life-saving. It's not some of these procedures aren't life-saving. It's that it's constantly used when it's not necessary and we don't fix the fundamental underlying problems. And if we would actually start teaching people what the fundamental underlying problems are, a lot of them are going to go live a terrible lifestyle anyway. It's not your problem. What you'll find is the people willing to pay you for that service will generally take your advice because people willing to pay for a service generally, you know, use the service that they pay for or they wouldn't pay for it. I have not yet talked to someone that, tr that tried to go there. I've talked to several doctors now that have, have taken that course and none of them said, you know, I couldn't get patients. It just didn't work. I had to go back. And many of them do things like, you know, if you can work in an ER, it pays well. So they work shifts in the ER until they build. And as they build up their practice, they reduce their shifts, things like that. Uh, that's what I've that's what I've heard. And I recommend that we start going more in that direction. We need more things like, you know, health care, health share programs and stuff like that. And if we were living healthy lifestyles, that type of insurance or assurance that a bill can be paid would be reserved for things like somebody gets cancer, somebody gets in a car wreck, you know, somebody has a heart attack, what have you, because then we need that cutting edge medical care. But how about we try to need it less as a step one to fixing this? Because 
the lie that keeps coming, and it's never going to stop until we stop believing it. People tell lies because you believe them. And when I say you, I mean society as a whole. The big lie in the health industry today is that health insurance is health care. That is the greatest lie sold to the American people in this space ever. It's the greatest lie sold to anybody in this space ever. Health insurance is not health care. Because plenty of people have health insurance they pay lots of money for, and they're still paying for their health care separately, and the health insurance never covers jack shit. So it's not health care. It's insurance. Car insurance is not transportation. Home insurance is not housing. How can you equate insurance with the thing that is supposed to be insuring? And you can't. And health insurance not only is in health care, it's certainly not health. It's not health. We need to start a whole movement toward better health and better quality health care in a more affordable way that has nothing to do with health insurance at all. Doctors charging to see patients, charging for testing, and doing so in a way that makes them profitable enough to be in business and live a great life for all the work they put into it, but it costs less than the insurance route. Do that, and we will destroy their flawed system with a market-based solution. That's my spirit go damas, but it's not when you say that's that's a prediction you're asking for. I'm telling you what's possible. Can I say it will happen? Like I can say that they will put cricket flour in your Doritos? No, because I know they're going to put cricket flour in your Doritos. I don't know if people and doctors as a whole will make the choice I'm talking about, but I think enough of them will that there'll be a huge segment and moving in that direction. And the more momentum, then the more providers chase that dollar, right? They chase that market segment. So we need to be more vocal about it. We all need to be part of it. And it all starts with taking care of yourself first. Like your goal should be to hardly ever see or talk to your doctor. You've been taught the exact opposite. You should talk to your doctor all the time. Even when you feel good, you should go to your doctor. You might need a drug and not know it, right? If you're healthy, you don't need a doctor. But if you want to stay healthy, you might want to consult with one. And when you have problems, you need to where to go to, including a doctor telling you, you know what? You don't need to worry about this. Many times that's all a parent's looking for. And the abuse in government health care is unbelievable. Uh, here's an actual story that really happened. My wife, back when she was a nurse, the doctors she worked for took Medicaid. One of the doctors was like a system guy. He's still doing the same shit. The other doctor was really beginning to have contempt for what she did. I think she sells real estate now. Her name was Dr. Richards. And a lady brought a kid in because kid had a mild fever and needed Tylenol. And she said, well, did you know your kid needed Tylenol? Like, that's like, really, that's all I got for you. Yeah. Do a little fever reduction and go on with your life. And the lady said, yeah, that's why I came in. And she said, well, Tylenol is available over the counter. You can buy generic Tylenol for like four bucks for a bottle of Tylenol. And the lady said, but if I come to you and you write a prescription for it, I get it for free. So she spent an hour in a waiting room, 15 minutes with a doctor to get a prescription for a $4 bottle of Tylenol. Because, gee, we need to make sure poor people have access to health care, meaning free health insurance. That's what that system is. No system that flawed is sustainable 
as long as if people are given a valid option to it. So doctors like yourself, sir, you need to provide the valid options, S, plural. That's how best marketplaces work is to have multiple ways that people can choose to address a problem or a concern. Oh, and by the way, this lady doctor who now sells real estate or at least did for a time, she's my hero in a way. You know what she told this lady? She noticed this lady had a pack of cigarettes sitting on the counter next to her purse. And she said, I see you smoke cigarettes. Those aren't free. Don't smoke for one day and go buy your baby some Tylenol. I think she ended up still having to write the prescription because of the regulations. But at least she had the stones to say it. Good for her. Um, next up, we had a quote came in off the blog. I really like this, and I hope that I've never confused anybody when I talked about this. Russ commented on the blog and said, poverty mindset doesn't necessarily coincide with low income. I know folks with great income, say 5X median income, that still operate with that mental barrier. That's the issue. I've listened to the podcast two times, printed out the list, and posted it over my, my office desk. And this was Why They Always Win and You Always Lose, episode 3229. I think it's one of the best episodes I ever did. I got a tremendous amount of feedback at um, The Greater Reset. People coming up that had just listened to that episode saying that was you know kind of an earth-shaking episode. And I hope people understand when I talk about poverty consciousness, it is more prevalent among low-income communities, right? And, and maybe that's where I cause confusion. So I grew up in a place that you could only call poverty stricken. By the numbers, people that live where I grew up in Pottsville and Minersville, Pennsylvania, Schuylkill County, is it's a poor county. And the median income is a fraction of what the, the, the national median income is, um, especially for the demographics that live there. If you break it down by demographics and what's typical for different age groups and races and stuff, well below average, well below average. Um, so when when I would go to places like, you know, I remember when I was I, when I was moving back there to take a job in uh, the Northeast when I was working for fluke and I had Virginia to Maine in my turn I was visiting my father and I ended up deciding to go fishing or something like that. And I stopped at a dunk, a donut place, whichever, you know, like a Dunkin' Donuts it was either Dunkin' Donuts or Mr. Donut. I don't remember. And I'm sitting there having a coffee in the middle of the day after I got done fishing and a donut and I'm listening to people talking. I must've heard the word cheap a thousand times and it had not occurred to me that that was part of what I had to break free. So I always tell that story, but it's not just an income thing because I fought it myself as I was coming up in income. And what happens is when you have a poverty mindset and you have, you've solved the income problem, you get a good paying job. Then you buy all kinds of shit. You don't need and spend all the money because there's a piece of you that feels like I got to I got to spend it while I got it because it's not always going to last. Right. And you also have become convinced that because rich people were happy and you weren't, that it's because they have stuff. And then you find out I can get easy credit. Next thing you know, we're in a bunch of credit card debt and stuff. Instead of saying, now that I have this income stream, how do I harness it so that my net wealth always goes up? And that doesn't mean you can't have things, but that's that's the trajectory. If you have a decent income, then your underlying net wealth should go up across time. And people don't do that. And even people that do, they do it on autopilot. 
They put 5%, 10% of 401k. They feel good about the statement that they get every month or quarter or whatever over time. And hey, my retirement's taken care of, even though they have no idea if it's going to cover their retirement instead of focusing on building that wealth. And the problem is poverty consciousness is less about money and more about how you value yourself for worth as a person. How much you value yourself and your ability to provide the things for yourself and your family that you need. When you have a high self-worth mindset, then you will build a massive net worth as far as your value. And it, it'll take many forms. Some will do it in the form that really is measurable in dollars at a, a very high level. And some will do it in a lifestyle. Like a person who has a small homestead, their homestead produces more than half their food. Everything that they own is paid for and has a very modest net income, pays almost no taxes, can go on vacation whenever they want, has a lot of really great fat friends, is able to send their kids off to do the things their kids want to do as they grow into adults and not pay for everything, but give them a good you know, kickstart, give them a good opportunity, an opportunity fund instead of a college fund, because many it's not college. Is that person not wealthy? They don't have a poverty consciousness. The poverty conscious person is always looking for the cheapest solution instead of the best bang for the buck. They're never looking at the value equation. They're looking at the cost. You know, I always look at what I call cost to value in everything that I do. Now, when you don't have money for a thing, then you have to defer gratification and have a thing. That's important with the example I'm about to give. My wife and I are going on vacation this uh Early summer, late spring, call it whichever one you feel like. We're going to a really cool place in the west coast uh, of California. We're going to go see the redwoods and sequoias like she's always wanted to. We're going to go to wineries. We're going to do all that. We're going to get an airplane, and we're going to fly from Dallas-Fort Worth Airport to an airport out in California. And we're going to sit in these seats at the front that are much bigger than the ones in the back. They call first class. The way I look at first class in general especially if you make your reservations far enough in advance, they're about three times the cost of coach. That's generally what they are. They're about 10 times better. I find the experience, especially now if I'm flying for, a, you know, up and down flight, like if I was flying to Houston, I'm not really that worried about it. But if I'm going to be on a plane for three or four or five hours and I'm going on vacation and we have multiple bags, and I want to pay for baggage and if I want anything to drink on the airport, they're going to charge me 10 bucks for a little bottle of Tito's or something to have a, 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 a Bloody Mary and all. Like, I'm starting to add all of the values up here and the extra bag for free and the getting on the plane before everybody else and, and get off the plane before everybody else. And right there is 45 minutes or more. I don't burn standing in line waiting to get off the plane to go get my freaking luggage. The luggage comes off. Like, I'm not just talking about the physical improvement of being in a chair where you're not crammed in, you can breathe, you don't have some dude breathing on your face, right? That's part of it. But the total package, at least 10 times better for three times the cost. And then I'm going to write off the trip because I'm going to generate content. This is a business trip. So the actual cost is half right there. Like there is no way that I will make the decision to fly coach unless I have to in that situation. And if I want to go somewhere, and the upgrade is so expensive that I'm like, I don't want to pay for it. I'll go somewhere else that year, and I'll defer that trip until the numbers make sense for us. 
That's what I'm going to do because I look at the value to cost ratio. When I recommend a product to you guys, I always talk about the value to product, value to cost ratio. Today, I'll show you our item in a day in just a minute. Very inexpensive, very cheap. You know what? Cheap and inexpensive, sometimes that's what you want. So we're going to talk about that in a second. But don't ever think that poverty consciousness means the person doesn't have money. It means that they are sabotaging themselves from ever having wealth. And there's money is a path to wealth. A path, not the path. Money is a path to wealth. And a good path to wealth is generally made up along multiple paths, being smart with money, because no matter how much money you have, it is part of your path. But it's also about what you buy and what you don't buy. People always say, well, if you want to get wealthy, save lots of money and don't spend much. No, the difference between wealthy people and poor people is what they spend their money on. When I'm going at something from a wealth standpoint, like I will buy a vacation like that and it's gone and it's an experience and there's no tangible wealth to it. But in other instances, when I put money into something, I want to know what's my ROI? What do I get back? I want to buy things that hold or go up in value or more than pay for themselves. If I invest in, a, in, in stuff to start seeds with and I spend a hundred bucks this year and I get to keep that stuff for more than five years, I will do it because I already know how much it would cost me to buy that many plants. And I know the first year it's paid for and every year after that's profit. Right. So that's that is a wealth purchase, even though it's not a large money or a large amount of wealth. purpose. What's the value of the food that I'm going to grow? Yeah. Wealthy people spend their money on things that either hold or build value. Poor people, even when they have good income, spend their money on things that decline in value across time. That's just part of the equation. We need to do a whole nother show on defeating poverty consciousness instead of just doing it pieces, parts when we do these shows that touch on it. All right. With that, if you do like this show and you want to exchange value with me, you know, you might hear yourself next week when I read Boost from Fountain. If you uh, if you provide a boost to Graham to us with value for value on a podcasting 2.0 app, you might want to become a member of the member support brigade. That's also a good financial decision because you get discounts on stuff you're probably going to buy anyway, and your membership will more than pay for itself. Wealthy people, wealth-minded people, buy discount memberships that more than pay for themselves because it's a good ROI. But the other thing you can do is you can do your online shopping at tspaz.com. That's right, tspaz.com, T-S-P-A-Z, tspaz.com. If you do that, you can help us out no matter what you buy, uh, no matter what it is. And today's item of the day is... This stuff right here. Oh, yeah. Hanging Laundry says Super Chat, Jack. We got one of those, and I'm going to recognize the person that sent it. But you can also Super Chat me here on YouTube. But these guys right here, they are little pulley systems. And this is for your plant lights that I was just talking about. So in your systems where you have lighting for your plants, you want the light fairly close to your plants. And as the plant grows, the ideal situation is you raise the lights as the plants grow. Well, that's how these little gadgets right here work. If you want to raise them up, you pull on the one side and they come up. And if you want to lower them, there's a little tab and you push the tab up and then you can pull the other side back down. And that way you can raise and lower your plants. These are great. And they're like 12 of them for 16 bucks. So you can run six lights for 16 bucks. They're inexpensive. They're made out of low cost plastic. I just talked about buying for value, but sometimes cheap and effective 
is the smart solution. I would say that's the case here. You can find these at T-SPAS, T-S-P-A-Z, T-SPAS.com. And if you start your shopping there, you help us out no matter what you buy. These things are great. I just installed them in my seed sorting system this weekend, and they're going to be a game changer. You really want your plants to be short, stocky, honey badger plants. That's one of the things you want out of them. If you have the lights way up high, they end up long, leggy, and stringy, and people are happy. Look how tall my plant is. Yeah, but how much biomass is there? That's what makes a strong plant. That's what makes a plant that goes out, and when you transplant it, it puts roots deep into that soil and develops that interconnection with the life in the soil and becomes a honey badger that doesn't get eaten by pests and doesn't get destroyed by disease and is more drought tolerant and drought resistant. We want to take care of the soil, but I want to tell you guys, the other thing you want to do, you want to build honey badger plants from the get-go. So check that out. Anyway, um, let's go take a few questions and comments. Goldshaw Farm says, has your opinion on chat, GPT, and other new AI tools changed? It has, dude. Um, the chat GPT, GPT thing, if you're using it for, like, writing sales copy and you understand it is just a tool, just like I can give one person a saw and a nail gun and a few other tools and they can build a house and the other guy will nail himself to the floor, like, the better you are at using the tool, the better it will work. What I was saying earlier is it's not artificial intelligence. It creates the illusion of artificial intelligence because it's basically programmed and fed from database, and it's given the tools to formulate sentences. It does not learn on the fly. It does not learn from its mistakes, and even the people that make it say that. By the way, they're now selling access to it for like 55 bucks a month because so many people are using it for what you are recommending, which is writing uh, sales copy and things like that. And I've played with it, and it is very, very good. And it's going to obsolete things like giving children – uh, writing assignments if they know how to use it. My grandson is not allowed to know this thing exists. I gave it an assignment to test it. I asked it to write me a paper on the difference biologically between cats and dogs in the style of a 10th grade paper and to give me six paragraphs on it and to cite two sources and provide a bibliography. I read what it wrote. I would have totally believed it was at a 10th grade level not a fifth grade level and not a graduate level for certain. Um, I would, if, if I was a school teacher and I got that assignment, I would have given the kid an A. Even the bibliography was done perfectly. It was incredibly well done. But it's not artificial intelligence in the way that the word is being used. And again, even the people that make it, if you read what they actually say about it, will admit to that. But it is a very useful tool. And it probably eventually will become something more akin to a true AI type thing. It's also fundamentally limited and has no ability to think for itself. That also makes it not artificial intelligent. There's things that you ask it to do. And I'll say, I can't, I can't do that because it would be unethical for me to do that. And then you can say, do you have ethics? And it says, no, I don't think and feel, right? So, yeah, it's not AI. It's a very cool tool, tool, though, and it is leading in the direction of true self-learning machines. It's not sentient, so it's not AI. Jay Diddy says, thanks for the shout-out on the boost, Jack. Jay Diddy, thank you for the boost. I appreciate that. Um, Jack, CBD oil cured my dog's seizures. The stuff works. And I, I, I'm glad to hear that, and I believe you, and I agree, but I'm back to what? It depends. So I have a uh, 
family member. It's my niece, so her adopted daughters. She's married to a guy I call my nephew-in-law because I don't know a better uh, term for him. Uh, but the one daughter had seizures, and they heard really good things about CBD, and they tried CBD, and it didn't do anything. So I think it may cure seizures, but it's not a cure for seizures. So, and I think that's another area we get with gray with medicine and doctors. Doctors like things to be, and the pharmaceutical industry creates this illusion to be cut and dry. If you have X, take pill Y. And, you know, if it's 95, 96, 97% effective, that'll do. And we'll just say X cures Y. Where in many instances, problems that we have as human beings are systemic. Uh, and they're much deeper than a simple thing like, well, the reason you have this is because you have that. And there are multiple things that could cause regular seizures in a being, whether it's canine, feline, human, etc. And in some instances, uh, subtle alterations of the endocannabinoid system may correct that. And in others, it may not. So I'm glad it worked for you. And it's certainly a very simple thing and a very safe thing to try. Um, trial and error said, Iowa here are deer are corn fed and taste like beef. Yeah, the more corn a deer eats, the more conventional the flavor. But that's also a big misnomer. And, and what I mean by that is, so are those deer corn fed? And it might be like, hey, it's Iowa. There's corn everywhere. They eat the corn all the time. They're, they're corn. No, they're, they're kind of corn finished, aren't they? So if a deer is running around in Iowa in January, how much corn is he really eating? How much corn is he eating in March? How much corn are they eating when the corn is two and a half feet tall but has no ears on it? It's just sometimes like hunting kind of coincides with maturity of the corn. So I think that, yeah, that's true that they probably eat a lot of corn around that time of year. And there was definitely, I'll tell you this, when I hunted in Pennsylvania, I used to hunt out near a dairy called Tumbling Run. We just called the whole area called Tumbling Run. And there was a lot of public access hunting out there. There was a lot of farm fields. And especially in archery season, you could pattern the the deer every freaking night. We're going to move out to those cornfields. And so you found runs, and that was what we did. We found the deer runs, the trails, and you were patterning the deer, moving from the bedding area during the afternoon in, into the evening, heading out to the cornfields. And they like to hit the cornfields at just, you know, dusk. So you kind of had to get as close as you could to the bedding areas. That way they were there earlier. You still had good lighting to shoot and what have you. And the same theory, when we used to hunt uh, mornings, we would try to get as close to the, or a little bit back from the fields, but still far enough away from the bedding areas, we could intercept them on that path coming back in the fields. Because even if they didn't stay out there all night, they would go back under cover of darkness to feed on corn. And what I'm going with this is when you shot one of those deer, especially late in archery season, because we never hunted rifles, so I don't know out there. Rifle was like you get shot at, like there was too many idiots out there. But late in archery, when those, that corn had been mature for them for quite a while, they've been able to actually feed on it. The fat on even like a two-and-a-half-year-old buck, the tallow on the back end, was like you'd skin that deer and you could cut – like inch thick slabs of tallow off of the back quarters and off of the back itself. When you shot a deer 
same time of year up in the mountains, it was living on uh, acorn mass and stuff like that. They had nowhere near amount, the amount of fat on them. And that's going to have a lot to do with flavor. So that type of thing happens. But I just think it's funny when people speak of a deer as though it eats corn all the time because it lives where corn's grown. But the corn's only actually available for, unless they're living like on the outskirts of like some sort of a mill or something where they're able to find a lot of stuff to, to glean from that, I guess. Uh, Larry tipped me 10 bucks uh, by Super Chat and said, made you look. Thank you, Larry. I appreciate that. Uh, John Hendricks, do you have any ideas why my lettuce is not crisp in my crack key and grow light indoor setup? No. It depends on a lot of things. Um, it is maybe the case that you're giving it too much fertilizer, and it may be the case that you're not giving it enough. And I would tend maybe toward too much. Lettuce doesn't need anywhere near the amount of nutrient that something like a tomato or a pepper does, especially at uh, time of flower and fruit. So you might back that down a little bit. It has a lot to do with the variety the temperature you're growing it in, et cetera. I will say one, the one negative that I will give about hydroponic lettuce is it doesn't seem to have the shelf life that aquaponic or soil-based does in that when you cut it, it's great, but like an hour or so later, it's really kind of flat. One thing you can do, you would think it would be plenty hydrated, but I found this to do with all greens, a great thing to do is you get, you know, in your sink or in a, uh, 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 like a Tupperware tub, very cold, like almost ice cold, but not ice cold water and soak your greens in that for about 15 minutes, drain them off and get them really dry and seal them in something with like uh, a bit of paper towel that is just barely damp. And I have found that greens from any source last longer. So I don't know if this is, when cut or after cutting or what have you, I think that would have to be a lot uh, of things. Uh, Hanging laundry, do you have a show on indoor seed starting equipment? Thanks. I'm sure I've taught, I've done seed starting shows. All you have to do is put seed starting in the subject line. Maybe that's something we need to do again. I'll definitely have some videos coming out of what I'm doing this year. If you mean it in the context of what I said today about making my own potting soil and tying into the biological life and creating that symbiosis in the seedling, I have nothing on that because until I heard Alan Booker talk about it, I had no idea that that was the way shit worked. I thought, you know, I take this plant, I put it in potty soil, as long as it's nice and healthy, when I put it out in my garden, whatever the biological symbiosis is, of course it's going to interact. And I think maybe Alan is one of those people that's so smart, he speaks in absolutes maybe more than he should. And I don't know that there would be no interaction because I've seen the difference. But the idea that the plant is going to make decisions about how it develops itself based on the absence of symbiosis at the time that it germinates. I mean, that bloom like I had like a 70 show uh, dope circle moment, man. Like I was like, whoa. And I like rewind. Listen to that again and understand the, the significance of that. And from a guy that's done the research and can tell you that what he said, he is not talking out of his ass, guys. So I don't have anything like that. Uh, Renegade Butcher says, tis the season for seed starting. We are getting there very, very close. It's hard to believe when I look outside and my ground is pretty white from sleet and freezing rain. But 
It is the season. It is time to get going. With that, uh, I'll let you go. Tomorrow, Michael Whitman from Blue Char Bio Blue Sky Biochar will be on to talk about making backyard biochar. We'll talk about the biochar industry. We'll go to another level with that. Uh, I'll, maybe I'll bounce some of this genetic stuff from Alan Booker off him and see what he has to say about it. Michael's an interesting guy. He, he was part of the first Earth Day ever in New York back in the early 70s. The guy's been around in the space of environment and growing better food and stuff like that for decades. For, for if it was, I think it was 71. So if that's the case, longer than Jack Spirico's been alive since I was born in 1972. So we'll have Michael on tomorrow. I got a great week of shows planned for you. Catch you on the next one. Take care, guys. Thanks for being here today. Thanks for everybody that supports me and my work. If you're on YouTube, please like the video. Please subscribe to the video. Please kick the, click the bell so you get notifications uh, because sometimes YouTube doesn't send it, but they'll never send it if you don't ask. Have a great one, folks. I'll catch you tomorrow with another episode of The Survival Podcast. Bringing you down. Are they going to bail you out? Just run you around They said you should have a house The American way a Dollar down, a dollar a month And you never have to pay There's a better way to do this Let me show you a better way Revolution.